0: Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner.
1: And I'm Ramin Farhad. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward.
0: Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. I'm Amit Patel filling in as guest host for Kim Kushner. Today, we are very excited to welcome to the show, Dr. Jason Campagna, someone I've had the privilege of collaborating with for many years. Jason is currently serving as the Chief Medical Officer of Q32Bio, an early stage biotech pioneering a new approach to treatment of complement-mediated diseases. Jason has significant experience in biotech, but it comes with a background which is much less common than we typically see. He's been a licensed physician leader who's practiced in academic and clinical medicine, private practice, and held roles in hospital administration. thrilled to have Jason on for many reasons today. One, to learn about his career and how he's bridged and leveraged his leadership experiences in these multiple settings to where he is now in his current role at Q32Bio, and two, to discuss how he prioritizes and strives to cultivate a culture of safety in the organization he leads. Jason, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the show.
2: My pleasure, Ahmed, happy to be here.
0: Great. So I, I provided a bit of a teaser regarding your background, Jason, but to start us off, it would be great if you could provide some details in your own words on your preferred professional journey to date.
2: Sure. I'm happy to. Uh, as you noted, I'm, a, I was a previous and a prior life academic physician. So I have, uh, I trained as a critical care anesthesiologist, um, earned a PhD in neurobiology. I completed a pretty traditional academic track. Um, went through a postdoc, full internship, residency, and a fellowship, and ended up practicing clinical medicine in an academic center where I had a lab of, again, a very traditional mix of kind of academic engagement. Sometime in the lab, sometime in the operating rooms, in the ICU, and then the remainder of the time, um, just trying to, you know, do all of the things that academics try to do. Was a board examiner, et cetera. My jump to biotechnology, I can't say that it was planned. It wasn't a grand life mission. Just life just sort of took me uh, in that direction, both combination of professional colleagues that had moved on and gone into industry over the years and just the the porous nature of what Boston and that practice environment is like with people sort of coming and going on both sides, that ultimately um, after about 15 years in clinical practice, um, by that point I was in private practice at a smaller hospital system in California, I made the formal jump after sort of dabbling in it for a couple of years, I made the formal jump and took a full-time role for the first time in industry.
0: Great, Uh, great, great background and, you know, definitely appreciate that. So you've, you've held many leadership roles in industry in both mid and large size publicly traded companies. Can you speak to some of the lessons you've learned from your experiences there that's really shaped your decision making and your current role like Q32 Bio and, you know, an early stage biotech company?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, I think there's probably two. So size often masks the same problem, whether it's a group of two people just sitting in a room trying to work an issue or a team of 200. On a global basis, trying to solve a larger problem. Underneath of it, I think I've, I've at least come to believe that the core elements are always sort of the same. How do we truly know if the people that we're working with understand in the case of safety here, the issues and the concerns that we have? So people will often talk, Oh, do we have, do we believe that our trial is protecting? patients adequately? Do we believe that we have the appropriate monitoring plan? Do we believe, and often you just get answers and you get an answer, you're like, great, that's wonderful. What we often don't do is ask, well, why do you believe that? On what basis do you say you know that? So in larger companies, there's often more opportunity to catch um, those missteps later because almost universally, people don't truly have a view on those things. They sort of think they do, but certainly the whole team doesn't. Smaller companies, on the other hand, you are more likely to get a candid answer and one that you can understand clearly. On the other hand, there's a lot less margin of safety, if you will, degrees of freedom, on how to remedy that if something goes wrong. Organization is smaller, less people available, time cadence is often picked up. So I think um, sort of in summary, very similar in terms of the nature of the problems that we face, but from an organizational perspective, they mask different elements of the challenge that we're working towards. When we think about patient safety in this regard, and Jason, how do you how do you how do you approach talking about
1: patient safety, um, and and maybe the culture of safety in general, especially for a smile biotech companies, um, more established big pharma, there they're, they're already been, they already have you know multiple products in the market. And, and they, their view of safety is slightly different. They don't have to worry about the funding every stage, every quarter of the, of the year. Uh, but for smaller startups, biotech companies that maybe they're not quite there yet, they don't have their product in the, in the market. They maybe even, it's still in preclinical or maybe phase one. Uh, when do you, when do you start thinking about that culture of safety? When do you think about building your, your P, PB and, and drug safety organization? When is, What's the sequential thinking there? It's a great question.
2: Um, I I will say that for me, I I do it from day one. Um, And and how do I do it? I I don't know that I have a recipe, but I certainly have an approach. And I try, you know, I think storytelling is a really powerful motif in business. You know, I don't know that we do enough of it as people. We all have lives and friends and families and things where we tell stories all the time. The moment you get into work, we sort of get very linear and focused on the details but often a story will will capture everything and here's one for example that i've told many of my teams um, mercury space capsule program you know united states i think everybody's somewhat familiar with elements of it but in 1961 gus grissom um, really one of the earliest astronauts in the mercury program his mercury capsule sunk after it landed in the pacific ocean as a consequence of um, these explosive bolts that were on the hatch of his spacecraft. The um, a lot of debate over what actually happened, but what we do know that happened is that the explosive bolts were triggered, the hatch opened, the capsule was not secure, water rushed into the capsule, and the capsule was lost. Two things are absolutely clear though. First, without that explosive bolts on that hatch, the hatch would not have been open. And therefore, second, the s- capsule would not have sunk. But everyone at NASA didn't put the hatch in place to try to sink the capsule. It was there for a safety reason. And in the case of Gus Grissom, it was there to make it more likely that in the case of an accident that the commander of that that ship, Gus Grissom, would be able to exit the capsule safely and rapidly. Therein lay, I think, a powerful story that depending on how we want it to go, there are many aspects of that that are applicable to, to companies. Example, often the things we put in place that we think are supportive of safety have a way of actually becoming making the situation less safe. Anti-lock brakes are another good example. Put them on cars, what happens? People go faster. And then it's sent offset some of the risk mitigation that anti-lock brakes were trying to do. So what I attempt to do when I engage organizations, particularly in smaller companies, has been to find what those stories are that spark interest in the organization and rally people around them and use that as a sort of jumping off point or a springboard for various lessons that are relevant to the clinical programs in a pharmaceutical company.
1: Um, What challenges do you come across dealing with that, Jason, uh, as as you go through that process? What what are some of the couple of the challenges that that we can all learn from, and how how did you overcome them?
2: Yeah, I mean, it it ranges from, maybe I'll I'll frame it this way, the the nature of the challenges range from the individuals not believing that they have a role to play in safety. They'll answer like, well, it has everything to do with the system. What, What role do I have in keeping a patient or a Clinical trials safe. To the other extreme, which is it's not my problem. It's the quote, sort of the the concern of the vendor or the CRO or the medical monitor, whoever it may be. And between those two extremes, I think almost anything has has come up. And I, you know, how, how do we engage them? I, I'll go back to the story nature of it all. I will really try to rally people around concrete examples of ways in which individuals make an enormous difference when it comes to subject protection what i say to people all the time is that safety doesn't live outside of you it's not um it's not a yellow ribbon that you wear in hospitals that say it's be you know patient safety week it's not a it's not a a sign in your office that says this is, you know, patient safety month. Oh, safety is, is
1: who you are, right? Exactly.
2: Right. It's a consequence of how we approach our work on a day-to-day and hour-to-hour basis. And it's by definition, therefore, an emergent property of who we are and how we engage with our work. I think that if when people truly understand that, at least they acknowledge that they have an opportunity to contribute to the dialogue around what makes safety and what doesn't. But if you can't get them over that hump, it's always this kind of external thing um, that often they don't believe is under any real control.
0: Yeah, it's, it sounds like the goal or the output is patient safety, right? So what, what are some of the inputs that get us there to achieve that, Jason? Like, what are your thoughts around that?
2: So how do we do better, right? So this is the eternal dilemma that um, we face. So in the 1980s, there was a really interesting Yale psychologist named Scott Perrow. He wrote a book, n- not, you know, not top seller list on Amazon, that's for sure. But it's a widely influential book in the field of safety and risk called Normal Accidents. And Pro didn't mean normal uh, in terms of description of frequency. He meant normal in description of how they unfold. A good example is we die only once, but we all do it. It's simply known to occur. That's a normal event. When one can look at a safety scenario and simply note that however uncommon it may be, his book illuminated that the path to get there is actually almost identical in any major safety event that occurs. And he hits on a kind of, I would say, a couple of really critical elements there. But here's just a few of them. Example, it's often the most banal and trivial things that lead to major safety events. We tend to think of them as these big, you know, well, what happened? And we're waiting for the, the sky fell and this happened. That's actually often not what happens at all. It's something very minor. Um, the patient uh, didn't exactly recall that they were supposed to stop their medication at this. And when they called, the person who got them on the phone was a little rushed and they didn't quite hear the full sentence. And the next thing you know, these banal and trivial events all added up to go boom, major consequence. I think another example, which was a critical one that I learned from Pro, is that organizations, in their zeal to do better, um, often in the in the in their attempts to do so by layering on more organizational complexity, they contribute to making the problem worse and not better. The Gus Grissom capsule example is a perfectly good one. There, very much, of well-meaning engineers thought it would be better to add explosive bolts to a hatch, and it turned out to be much, much, much worse from the perspective of the capsule. And therein lay the rub. Organizations in their zeal to do better often make things go worse. And and the last point is, from an organization perspective, and this is where bigger is often more problematic than smaller, but what are the kinds of missteps that bigger organizations take? Well, it's things like, I'll, I'll, you know, sort of in quotes, time and again, organizational missteps were overlooked, small corners cut, not paid attention to, small issues not addressed. And then you look up and then how did a safety event happen slowly at first and then suddenly it sort of accrued all of that sediment accrued. I think that those lessons from pro are very real and they are really relevant to organizational structure and how we think about a culture of safety.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm not making a blanket statement by any means, but it sounds like in many organizations, safety becomes deprioritized. Right. It's at times becomes reactive versus proactive. And it's a cost center. Until something goes wrong, like, what, what are you, what's your perspective on that? What's your thoughts on that? I know we've collaborated in the past and we've seen that in, in real time, but you know we'll love for you to share that with some. Um. Yeah,
2: it's a good It's a very it's a, it's insightful and sadly it's true. And I think it manifests in in a couple of ways, but a common one is, well, come on, we've paid X amount of dollars for safety um, initiatives over the last X number of years. That should be sufficient, right? Well, aren't we good? Aren't we covered? Well, maybe. Safety is not bankable, though. You can be safe for a week, a month, a year, a decade, and the next day you can be dramatically unsafe and have a catastrophic outcome. You don't get any credit for not having for been safe for the prior period of time. So that, in a way, those sunk dollars don't matter. It's irrelevant. And I think the second way in which they do it is that those initiatives often intended to facilitate safety. We, the organization will tend to say, oh, well, we have these initiatives in place. We can therefore go faster, do more, take on more risk because we've sort of covered ourselves with those safety initiatives. A really common example in operating rooms is production pressure. How quickly should we move between cases? How quickly should we exit people from operating rooms, bring them to the recovery rooms, start the next case? There's an economic side to that argument, and then there's a fundamentally, when are people safe enough to be woken up from an anesthetic and exited from the care of a one-on-one provider, whether it's a nurse or a physician. When the moment you put um, initiatives in place to accelerate that with emphasis, organizations like hospitals will tend to take advantage of it and move faster. No different than the average person who when they got anti-lock breaks, Initially, they drove more safely. And now we know that no one drives less, you know, better with anti lock brakes. In fact, our driving behavior is much worse in a world with all of our safety devices in the cars. People have taken on enormous risk compared to the way we drove in the 1990s. And I think that's what happens in organizations. They sort of overcome their goals to be safer by increasing activities and actions, which in and of themselves tend to make you less safe. Right. I think that's why. I
1: mean, that's why the culture of safety that you've been thinking about and, and bringing it up is so critical. That you know, thinking about safety not just as a department, but it's but it's something that we're all kind of responsible for because we all have different perspective and we may see different different aspect of things that even the folks within the that function or that organization may not may not see, especially with a lot of the a lot of the people from the. From the clinical development side, clinical operations, our partners, our CROs, our our solution providers, our thought part partners, um, medical affairs, our MSL team, right? It's it's almost like a like a like a really a team approach to that safety, as opposed to well, that's not really my job. I don't have to worry about it. I'm sure they have it covered. Um, wh- one question building up on what you were just talking about was um, the, and the cost center that Amit was was bringing up Uh, some people do have the view that is a cost center and is a very transactional it's it's a kind of like a necessary evil that we have to have um and i've seen in organizations uh with my own experience that uh the pv and drug safety was really in a strategic partner cross-functionally and being more proactive they were not just sitting in the office and for a drug you know uh, adverse event to happen and then do their investigations and do the forms and, and do the, the reporting as requested. They were actually being more proactive. They were trying to look for signals, um, to making sure that the product continues to staying in the park, in the, in the market. Because with those signals, there are certain, um, actions you can take. You can focus on education. You can focus on, you know, uh, papers, posters, manuscripts that you can have to make sure that the conditions are appropriately um, kind of knowledgeable and have the education to make the right decisions. How do you? What is your view about PV and safety as a strategic partner, uh, which may not be today in in many companies, and it is in
2: and is in a lot of companies too. I'm sure. You know, Clive. Meanwhile, was the founder of the medicines company, and I, I worked for Clive. He was my first entry into into the world of pharma. So, Clive brought me out of medicine into the medicines company. And the very first place where he had me, he, I did sort of an internship with the medicines company, uh, like a translational year. I, uh, he would put me in every function in the company for anywhere from a couple of weeks to a couple of months. So it went from, I was frontline with commercial teams embedded in sales teams, all the way down to um, you know, quality teams doing a site audit. The first place he put me was drug safety. And um, I think that he viewed, and I'll quote him back, Chapter one of any business plan should be the opportunity. Chapter two should be your PSUR, for example. That unless you have a clear eye towards how the product has performed in the real world, data safety, um, including down to when we would have, you know, uh sales events where you'd have a plan of action event with the sales teams, he would comb through the PSURs for case narratives that he wanted to share with the salespeople so that they understand how their drug goes wrong, that they were selling in the real world. I think Clive was the model for me in how safety and PV is by definition a strategic asset to a company. That being said, I think it's an anomaly, unfortunately. I think, um, Raman, what you just outlined, teams that are consistently able to do that over long periods of time in a cross-functional manner, I think that's rare. Outside of healthcare, well, outside of pharma, We call those kinds of organizations high-reliability organizations or HROs. This is, again, another field of study. And the characteristics of those fields are that where it's an environment, one, characterized by high risk, uncharacteristically high risk. Healthcare is a good example, pharmaceutical clinical trials. in particularly the more severe the indications, the more that holds true. Um, The second is where the systems surrounding those organizational structures are complex. Complex meaning we don't truly understand all of the inputs and the outputs. And even if we did, we couldn't control them anyway. Um, And the third are long periods of time of high operational cadence and tempo. Um, That's clearly medicine, operating rooms. And certainly when we run clinical trials at speed, when you have an organization that are confronted with those three elements, the majority of them, the ones we're all familiar with, don't do as well as we would like. They're the ones that end up making whatever relevant publication that we're all reading about, ooh, that's painful. But the ones that do do it well in the way that you described, that over time consistently maintain that, they get this nice label called an HRO. And there are some really nice examples of those in healthcare systems, and pharmaceutical companies. The U.S. Navy is a very good example. Carrier flight operations are one. But it takes intent and it takes leadership to do that and back to the investment in safety. If companies already believe that safety is a, a, a line item that's really sunk cost and there's no value, it's very difficult to get them to come around to, well, I need to pay a, a thoughtful leader to help my company get around this organizational construct. So instead, we just sort of limp along from one event to the other and never really grow from it.
1: Right. No, absolutely agree. I think it's 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 a mindset. The mindset should be, how do I use PV and safety as in a strategic pillar, as a strategic driver for the overall company, which also brings the, the safety that the clinicians and the patients want as well, as opposed to this is the department there that is just is collecting side effects and um and that's not necessarily something that we want to deal with. On the other hand, I've I've seen companies, as you were just describing, that they actually want to study those side effects. They want to generate more data around it. They want to know why why they are seeing this certain adverse event. They they are looking for the answer. And, and, you know, as you know, sometimes in science there's no black and white and there's no answers and there's just more data and more data. And based on the data that is being generated, I think the clinicians also feel a little bit safer to use the product in a certain situation that they might not have. If the company was not really investing to um, get kind of the, the core of the, of the issue of the safety.
2: Yeah, I think that when, when you really click into this, that this is it, it's really a rich area to explore, but some challenges that teams like that have, and I mean, what's the goal of all of this, right? In an ideal world, everything we know as a sponsor in the pharmaceutical industry is known by our investigators or our treaters real-time, instantaneously, with no filters. Um, and second, that we are fully aware of the safety product, safety profile of our product at any given moment in time. We're sort of information rich and inference poor. We don't need to infer anything. The facts are sort of right in front of us. What happens in the real world? Two things go wrong all the time. The first is it's really difficult for teams to constantly work when nothing's going wrong. This is very typical in what happens in hospitals. That's why you say, well, we were safe all last year. And we didn't have one event. What do you expect from us? For teams, what's their goal every day? Are you counting on the wall event-free days? Who does that, right? Adverse event-free enrollments? No one does that, although it would be a powerful metric. What if the goal was to go 900 days in a row without a safety event? Sure, people would game the system, but in a pure world, that's a really thoughtful metric to think about. Um, The other problem that we get into when teams are out there and we're talking about how do we take advantage of data and engage and everything else, it's when you're in front of the problem, you never really know how extremely difficult it's going to be. And if a sponsor reacts to every safety event as if it could be a death, well, that will quickly end, right? Meaning the sponsor will run out of gas, run out of steam, run out of money. Something will exhaust themselves but almost every one of the major events that happen always start with, I never saw that coming Right. back to the banal of it all, right? The banality of it all. It's it, you, you get a note across the transom. Oh, we had an adverse event at site a and patient one, and you talk to the investigator and it doesn't seem like anything. And then a week later, it's an expedited safety report. What happened? I think, it's really difficult to build teams that are able to weather that sort of um, rapid escalation from very banal circumstances and at the same time maintain a high level of vigilance week after week, month after month when nothing is happening. I think it's very difficult to do that. And one of the things that I try to instill in the teams is that periodically you have to challenge them with, in a way like a fake safety event. You have to have a drill. This is what the Navy has taught us. There, you know what they do on nuclear submarines? I don't know, but they don't launch nuclear missiles, that's for sure. Um, so they do a lot of training, and they do a lot of drilling. And that is a lesson that I have tried to bring in, whether it's in medicine or in sponsors, to even basics of, hey, you see that AED on the wall? Has anybody practiced with that lately? And similarly, we've never had uh, – take my company at 232, We've been very fortunate in our clinical development programs. We've not had a reason to have uh, an expedited safety event. That's wonderful. But on the other hand, we haven't practiced it either. So what would happen if? And I think that these are that's the kind of organizational challenge that you're facing in a world in which within the absence of event, how much do you practice? How much do you rehearse? How much do you plan versus when you're in the thick of it and everything's sort of falling away and you have a number of safety events? How do you be something more than just reactionary to those things and yet go to a higher level? I think these are all very difficult challenges. And the smaller the company, the worse it is.
0: Yeah, you, you, uh, you raise a good point, Jason, right? So a lot of the challenges that you just mentioned come down to, you know, it's all obviously top down from the leadership perspective, but it also comes down from uh, a budget aspect as well, right? So you can, you can, you would, you're going to need the right people, the right team, the right systems in place to do a lot of that monitoring, right? So how do you, how do you approach the, uh, approach the mail on questions such as the optimal balance of staffing uh, and organization to meet that culture and to install And to basically, um, you know, come come out on the other end with that culture of safety. I think,
2: Amit, my approach is a little unorthodox, um, but I don't don't think it'll be surprising. It'll be unorthodox for for the pharmaceutical industry. It's just a carryover for medicine that I found that the most effective way to engage people around how much do we do, an operating room team versus others, outsourcing, the hospital, the health system. everyone else, is human beings before human doings. I always ask, and I open with a team, what do you believe we need to ensure to maximize subject protection in our clinical programs? It's a very basic question, but it's a human question. It's often, it amazes me every time I ask it, the answers I get. Everyone is worried about this. Everyone they all have an answer to that question. And it often has nothing to do with medical monitoring or reviewing safety labs or signal evaluation and risk management CERM. It comes down to some degree of, well, who is the person doing the medical monitoring? Do I trust them? Can I believe them? Um, Have we met the investigator, the people or the CRA that are reviewing the data? Notice they're not asking for a CRA, or for an investigator. They simply want to know who they are. There's a humanity to all of this. And do we trust those people to tell us that everything's okay or everything's not okay? So back to the in versus out problem. The most critical question I ask is, once a team tells me what they need, is the vendors I engage in are, are you able to bring to us that level of intimacy around patient safety? Because it's a human endeavor. It's not an abstract concept. We're not just trying to enroll numbers in a clinical trial here. We're asking, hey, Amit, in the case of when we've worked together for many years now, who are the people that are in front of our trials? What are the nature of their training? How reliable are they? Can we meet with them? Can we talk to them? Can they meet the teams? Do the investigators like them? I know those are soft, and often people would say, who cares? If they have a degree and they're able to do the work, people would say, and they're not very expensive. That's wonderful my approach is the exact opposite from that i am eager to get support from the outside but beginning with the very human elements of the of who those people are that are supporting us and from there all of the details are on great you all can handle individual case reporting or aggregated case reporting that gets easy to do after that um, but if you don't get the first part done i think we end up debating those line items on an SOW of who does what, never really getting to the marrow of it are, do you share our sensibilities? And more importantly, do we believe that the guidance and the safety support you're going to give us will ensure what we're trying to accomplish, which is maximizing subject protection. Right, so you don't have to second
1: guess it. It it seems to me like the the mindset that you come from is you want to integrate with your partners and with your vendors right? Be very transparent with them. So they know what what the expectations are from you, how how you operate, how your team operates. Uh, so they know exactly, not only just they know what they're getting into, but also they become more part of your team as an extension of your team, as opposed to this outside agency that is helping with some work that you don't have the capacity to work with. Um, I think that allows you, and that's really a smart way of thinking about it, because I think that allows you to really tap into their to their experience and their knowledge that they have, right? When people feel like they belong somewhere and they feel like they're part of this team as opposed to I'm this outside agency doing some of the work that they need to do, I think people just naturally step up at a different level uh, than they would if it's something that they're more um, separated from.
2: I think this is exactly right, and this is such a critical point. It's worth just kind of reemphasizing it. People often think of doctors, or in this case, safety physicians, as sort of knowledge engines, Wikipedia engines. I know, I'll go to my medical monitor or my safety person for a fact-based answer. That's actually not what doctors, why any of us go to physicians at all. We go there because we want their opinion, that is their judgment. And judgment comes from deep experience, pattern recognition, etc. cetera. So what we all do as even just lay people is we rely on our physicians and their judgment to help us steer clear of unnecessary risk. It's my view that's identical to what I want in a vendor when we talk about safety management. I'm, yes, I might need you to file an aggregate case report. Fine. I'm happy to pay for that. What I really care about is at the earliest moments of an event, before it's a safety issue, at the earliest moments are, tell me what you think how does this strike you? What's your perception of this? That judgment issue that from my perspective is the most valuable thing that we can buy in the marketplace from people that live in a world of pharmacovigilance and that pattern recognition. You know, Jason, it's simple as this. Got a call from our safety person, which you all, um, as you know, Amit, we've been working with for many years. I think the world of this team I got a phone call a number of months ago about an event in our trial. It's a factual event. A patient presented and the following lab was observed. Great. The most important question I ask, what do you think? That's worth every dollar that we pay, having somebody on the other end of that listening to that question that's able to answer it intelligently. And what what do you think is the profile
1: of, of someone who is interested uh, Jason to uh, maybe not just p v and drug safety, but overall, but since we' we are focusing on p v and safety what's what 's the profile of somebody for that would be successful or they enjoy this type of work? What do you look for
2: well, yeah i mean there 's definitely a phenotype you know this um you see it obviously in healthcare and you see it in industry, certain people tend to gravitate towards these fields, but I find that. Quality, patient safety, regulatory all have similar traits and that they matter. But the three that I think of is that people are detail-oriented. They're reluctant to assume anything unless it's absolutely required to do so. They they seek to sort of – even if they do assume, they seek to validate that assumption prior to acting on it. And then lastly, that when they are uh, engaged in activity, they're often mindful that of the individual action we're taking back to those bolts uh, on that explosive hatch – that others may view that act or that safety intervention from a different perspective, which may have its own challenges or problems associated with it. And let me give an example on that last point. Uh, operating room, a, a magnetic resonance imaging facility. These are big magnets. There's no metal allowed, no magnetic metals allowed. There are signs everywhere. There are symbols on the floor, circles, you you couldn't believe the number of warnings and precautions around making it clear that there should be no metal here, right down to the kinds of equipment that are allowed anywhere near those rooms. And that's great. Now, suddenly, you're in an event, and you decide that you're very worried about the child, for example, and you ask, you're mindful of this. My point is you have to be mindful of the way Your decisions and safety potentially could impact other people. It's a trait that you're willing to think carefully about the potential impact that you didn't foresee. So you ask somebody, you know what, please wheel the code cart closer and just keep it outside just in case. And the next thing you know, that code cart's flying across the room because it's being taken by the magnet. And it causes an event. So your, everything was perfect up until that moment, and you forgot to recall or keep in mind that your action in the pursuit of safety may actually compromise safety. And I think that I'm not just trying to belabor the point for it's, it's not trivial at all. In clinical trials, there's always a trade-off to be made, always a trade-off to be made. You can't bring somebody in for their month 18 visit, and you want safety labs, so you'll get them at home. What's the consequence of getting them at home? You lose a provider's eyes on the patient. That may be okay. It may not be okay. But you must ask the question, is it acceptable if a clinical provider does not see the subject at that month 18 month visit, even though I get the data? So the question is, what are we solving for? The subject laying eyes on the patient and hands, or are we solving for the data? we often will put a thing in place like a visiting nurse without regards to which of the two we're working for.
0: So great, great, Jason. So um, I, I guess one last thing, you know, I'd love to for, for you to provide any, some, some, some type of guidance or advice for others that are in a similar situation to you that are you know relatively new to industry, relatively new to playing a role such as yours that, you know, you could provide some you know advice or guidance to in regards to how you would build this uh, internally at an organization. We'd love to hear your thoughts around that.
2: I think chief medical officers, I think the title of chief medical officer often conjures up a number of things to people and they are sort of what they are. My perspective is that the role for anyone looking, coming in the industry, potentially looking to lead large organizations or small ones in a role like a chief medical officer, I think the primary message that I would convey is that Someone has to be willing to stand on principles and values that are often lost in business planning documents and strategic decision making scenarios and long range planning exercises and the like. We, we tend to get anchored on facts and figures and numbers and revenue projections and trial metrics and somewhere someone in the organization has to be able to and willing to remind people at a team level with a simple question of, have we hurt anyone today? Have we caused any harm today? Have you thought about your actions and whether or not you're contributing to making things better or making things worse? If people are not willing to do that, or that's not interesting to them, that's okay. It doesn't make them bad people, and it doesn't mean they can't go in the industry. I would say that from my perspective, that's the field needs more of that. And that I think, particularly now, as we're seeing a number of programs, you know, due to the economic headwinds, closing down due to you know trial miscalculations in some cases, but there have been in my view, um, a rush to get a lot of programs into clinical testing because that's where the, the valuation has been for people. And in smaller companies that haste to get into clinical testing as quickly as possible, layering on safety programs and medical monitoring programs. If there's no one really advocating for why you're doing it, what's the point of it all? Why are you spending the money in the first place? Someone has to be standing in the room and go, I care. This is important to me. And if someone, if a CMO was willing to do that, I think that's excellent. If a head of clinical development or operations willing to do that, I think that's outstanding. Anyone in the organization could do it. But the higher up you go on the leadership ladder, I think the more important it is to be willing to raise your hand and say, this is important to me personally. And I also believe it's the right thing to do for this company. And if you're willing to do that, often my view is that wonderful things are given back to the organization when people take that position. Very different than the traditional advice of you know study hard, work hard, you know run clinical trials, lean, save people money. It's you know that's what I mean by unorthodox.
1: Right, right. No, that that's that's really great advice. And uh, and and as you said, I mean I've seen in my career that people don't necessarily, especially with all of our backgrounds, people don't necessarily choose going to medical or pharmacy or, or any type of a research to go into the industry necessarily. Right. Um, and, and we all kind of end up wherever our, our career kind of takes us. Um, but what you're saying is absolutely correct. I mean, it does take a certain, certain kind of phenotype to be able to raise the hand up and say, but way, I do care about this. And I think this is an important, and this is why this is important. And this is how. What did part of part of the challenge also is have when you raise your hand up, also having a solution with it as well, right? Or at least thinking about it, start thinking about a solution, not necessarily a showstopper. And that's, I think that's, um, that's a critical phenotype to have for sure.
2: Um, one of the things I try to convey to my teams and to myself, remind myself all the time back to the safety is not outside of us. It's in us. The moment I hear from a team, oh, vendor A, whomever it will be, Simios, PPD, it doesn't matter. Well, they're they're managing safety for us, or SSI, whomever it will be, they're managing safety. That There's no sentence that will get me more riled up more quickly than that statement. So we're going in for a regulatory interaction. We'll be like, oh, FDA may want to see X or may want to see Y. Fair. I often come back with almost the identical question every time. What's important to you? What safety data do you need to know before you would be comfortable dosing that patient? Forget what FDA thinks, because if you don't have an answer to that, what, what are you going to tell them? If, if your goal is just to tell them what you think they want to hear, that's a recipe for disaster across the right. board. Right. You have to have a personal belief, a strongly held conviction, if nothing else, about what is your view of what constitutes right and wrong here, appropriate, inappropriate, risky, not risky. And you have to be willing to stand behind that with a plan of action about what you're going to do. And this, you know, we we tend to focus on all these things with clinical holds, and everybody's all focused on, oh, what do we need to do for clinical hold? Well, if everybody had that attitude before, yes, well, you might much, not have clinical to holds that much.
1: Right. And I've seen a lot of the companies, and especially even, even a small startup biotech company that they're incredibly good at. Understanding what is the safety that the clinician is going to have or the patient is going to have right while they're while they're still in preclinical and they haven't even started the clinical phase one yet, so they have a pretty good idea what are some of the issues that they need to be watching out for and and have a concern about before even the, the first patient uh, you know the first human in phase one actually you know uh, volunteers get the, get the product get the drug uh as well. And that works out really, really nicely because you're continuously providing that insight and feedback into your program, making sure that you are collecting the the right data. Um that whether your product is safe or not safe, that's that's kind of like irrelevant. You just have to make sure that you collect you collect the right data that is ultimately beneficial for the clinician and the patient make the right decision. That's that's what that job is. Um, and that all makes sense. Um, this has been a very insightful session. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. I know I've learned quite a bit, um, and thank you very
2: much for your, for your time uh, joining us for this for this episode. Well, you're welcome. I appreciated the dialogue, and uh, thank you for inviting me.
0: Great, thanks Jason, appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSISTrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.